Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. Holy smokes, a lot is going on. Yeah, we're looking forward to the Mueller report. We'll have more to say about that next week after we get a chance to review it. The first reactions are interesting, but not really telling. We'll give it some time to tell you what it means. This is the Bill Bennett Show, and it's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take an honest look at the current administration. We discuss existential threats to America. Joining me is Christopher Scalia. You know that last name. His dad was my friend. Right. Justice Scalia. We'll talk about his new book on faith, where he shares his thoughts about the faith of his father, Antonin Scalia. Indeed, we think it's appropriate to have uh, Chris on because this is Easter week. Correct. Yes. And uh, Holy Week. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Passover coming up as well. Right. So um, appropriate to be talking about faith. We'll also speak with Brian Kennedy. He's a man of faith. He's also the president of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow. We'll take a look at the 2020 presidential election. And we'll get Brian's thoughts on if a China trade deal will get done. We'll also hear from Brian about a new group he's forming having to do with China. Oh, nice. Yeah, very interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about a couple things. Uh, You're going to go first. I'm going to set you up, though. Okay. Ever heard of the poet William Blake? British poet? Uh, no, sir. Tiger, tiger, burning bright <laughs> in the forest of the night. Right. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? <laughs> symmetry. <laughs> fearful symmetry. Right. Well, to Mr. Fino and Mr. Bolinari, guys yeah. I put uh, 10 cents on, let's mm-hmm. say 10 cents. Sure. Um, he did have a fearful symmetry. He was strong, came came back. Well, and it looked like Molinari had it up until 12, where he double bogeyed. But then even then, he was putting so strong, I felt he birdied maybe 13, 14, even 17 or 18. And he double bogeyed 15. Yeah. And that opened the door for Tiger. And uh, Tiger did what, you know, past Tiger would do. He slammed the door and won the Masters. It was It was remarkable to see, to be honest with you. I mean... You know, this guy who, um, at the top of the game, you know, uh, then he takes just what seems to be an onward-going downward spiral from personal life to golf career. I mean, he couldn't chip the ball three or four years ago. He couldn't chip it from the rough one to the green. He could barely walk two years ago. Was it 12 surgeries or something? Yeah, something like that, right? He's got this back fusion, and then he he wins uh, in 2018 to close out the season. And then next thing you know, here he is winning the Masters, the first major of the season. It was it was crazy to see. It was. I was very moved by my son who sent me a text saying, "Did you see the picture? Juxtaposition of the pictures of Tiger's father Earl hugging mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. Uh, back when, and then the picture of Tiger hugging his son right, uh, right. on Sunday last Sunday." And uh, I hadn't seen it. Uh, I did watch a live uh, hug of the of the sun, but they did show it later on. I saw that juxtaposition. Yeah, it's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful. It was Tiger's? I think his first Masters win was the first picture with his dad. Yeah, and then you know, of course, his dad no longer with us or him. Uh, and then he hugs his son. You know, just kind of yeah. coming full circle. It was it was interesting. And for me personally, on a weekend where I literally played my first nine holes with my son. There you uh, go. And so and we're both sitting down and watching Tiger finish out. Really? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Really? Absolutely. Oh, uh, was he? Were you rooting for him? Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, your son? Yeah. Uh, you know, he was he, Ricky Fowler. Ricky, Ricky Fowler. That's his guy. You know, but he was happy to see Tiger win too. I mean, you know, he kind of got caught up in the whole thing. Well, what about now? So now he's got fifteen, right? Yeah. And Nicholas has eighteen mm-hmm. majors. Yes. So will he make eighteen? I think so. Well, you do. I mean, I wouldn't bet against it. How old's Tiger? Tiger, I've got to check it, but he's in his early 40s. Um, but I wouldn't bet against it. I mean, um, you know, look, before the Masters, I would have said there's no way he's catching Jack. But watching him win that, and you've seen the progression over the, you know, last the beginning of last golf season, 
if anyone would have said he would have gotten through 2018 without injury, we would have said it was a successful season. He had a lot of top tens, and he had a win. And then he comes in 2019 and wins the first major. Now you're like, you know, yeah, Jackson in in reach now. Good. All right. I want to talk about um, Elon Omar and her comments about 9-11. I want to talk a little bit about Sanctuary Cities. We'll do that with Brian Kennedy coming up. But I did want to talk about the Cathedral of Notre Dame, uh, a place where I've been. I don't know if you've been. Have you been to Paris? I have not. No. I have not. It is really a gorgeous place and a holy place. And, uh, you know, the picture we go away with is two. One, the spire, spire falling down, mm-hmm. engulfed in flames. The other, that cross on the altar yes. with the ray of light coming mm-hmm. in, which remained untouched. Mm-hmm. Quite something. But um, I was looking for words for it, and I was on TV, and I said, you know, I was Secretary of Education. I used to teach. I could teach an entire course on Western civilization just using that church, that mm. cathedral, as a text. Oh, wow. The history there, religion, art, music, literature. Uh, you know, one king of, of England uh, went there and became the king of France as well. Mary, Queen of Scots, went to that church and was married to the Dauphin Francis, who became the king of France. Napoleon Bonaparte was uh, crowned emperor of uh, all of France uh, there. Joan of Arc was canonized there. Uh, extraordinary. It is a place where perhaps the real crown of thorns remains, uh, which is what was put on Jesus' head. It's part of the, uh, part of the, uh, the crucifixion. And um, it, it's just remarkable. When you go in the church, and, you know, this sounds like an exaggeration, but it's, tr- it's true. You go into the church, it's like your head is lifted up. You just want to look up. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it was built. That's the way it was designed. And um, look up to God. Mm-hmm. And it is gorgeous. Uh, one last thing I'll tell you. I was reminded of this by uh, by a friend. And I looked it up. Uh, Kenneth Clark, who was a, a guy from Great Britain, Scottish guy, did a series on TV called Civilization. And it was out of 24 parts. And it was art, history, music, religion, everything. It began with a picture of Clark in the foreground, and over his left, left shoulder, um, he was there in Paris, is the Cathedral Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And he says this series is called Civilization. If you ask me to define it, I can't. But if you ask me what it looks like, and he turns and points to Cathedral oh, wow. Notre Dame. <laughs> that is what civilization looks like. Wow. So that was something to watch it burning. Mm-hmm. It survived World War One. It survived World War Two. Charles de Gaulle uh, went to Mass there to celebrate the victory of uh, the Allies in World War II. Uh, it almost didn't survive the uh, French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Robespierre was there, and they took down all the holy statues and put in statues uh, dedicated to the cult of reason. Uh, they cut off the heads of a lot of statues and so on. But uh, it was brought back to the church, and that's a remarkable monument. We still, at this point, don't know how it was caused. I'm still worried about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, uh, we shall see. It was it was quite something. I hope it was a reminder to people of things that matter. Right. Um, I heard one guy say, actually a priest, say, well, most important thing, no lives were lost. This is just a building. I agree with the first part. Most important thing, no lives were lost. Mm-hmm. Lives are most important. But I don't agree with the second part. It's just a building. It's not just a building. It's a, <laughs> this thing is 900 years old, you know. Uh, remarkable piece of work. 
and all the stories, all the ghosts that are in that uh, cathedral, to say nothing of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a remarkable. Well, yeah, I was uh, actually in a business meeting at a restaurant. We're sitting at the bar. We're meeting, and we're, the interruption on television and the show is happening. And as it continues, we're watching. Everything stops, and we realize just how big of a deal this is. And we're watching, you know, history, really. Um, and uh, you're watching it burn. At the time, we weren't sure what the damage would ultimately be. Um, but it's obviously great news that no one, no lives were lost and that the structure itself can be rebuilt. And and, and, this, yeah, yeah. and we're watching this and we're just, you know, <laughs> realizing just the gravity, you know, of it all uh, and then the history of it. But one thing that was interesting as I was talking to a buddy of mine about it um, this morning being uh, Wednesday, um, the 17th of April, you're hearing news outlets and news anchors and reporters say the name Jesus, crown of thorns, faith, uh, uh, Catholic, who would, normally wouldn't mention it at all. And this week of all weeks, you know, and if there's anything righteous or divine that could come out of a tragedy like this, you know, that would be what it is. Yeah. A lot of the commentary is, as I was saying, I noticed the same thing. People are talking about it and they're saying the right words, but they're talking about like they were anthropologists Mm -hmm. looking at some tribe of people called Catholics (laughs) or Christians. Right. But we got to realize that inside that church is a place for faith and believers that's right that's right and more people visit the cathedral notre dame and pray there mm-hmm. than go to the eiffel tower wow so quite yeah. something there you go you're listening to the bill bennett show bill bennett show well, it's time to welcome Christopher Scalia to the show. Chris is the co-author of On Faith, and we will talk to him about faith on this Holy Week. Chris, I'm so glad to see you. Um, I know a lot of your family. Uh, spent a lot of time with uh, your big, big brother, uh, Gene, and with your dad, but I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Happy to, happy to talk to you as well. Uh, congratulations on the book, On Faith. Uh, it is uh, Easter season. Uh, I want to get into uh, some Scalia family lore here, but first, why this book on faith? And your timing is great. Well, my uh, my father cared very deeply about uh, about religion, as, as many of your le- listeners probably know. And uh, even before he passed away, he, he had been considering uh, putting together a collection like this. Uh, so we saw this as kind of an opportunity to to finish what he started. So a couple of years ago, we published a larger collection of his speeches called Scalia Speaks, and um, that covered a gamut of topics. From It had speeches about faith, but also speeches about religion and identity. It had eulogies and tributes and things like that. But we thought that just a collection about his, uh, about, or of his speeches about faith would be really useful, kind of just a, you know, a one-stop shop for that sort of thing. Um, but we wanted it more than that. We we wanted not to. We wanted to convey um, not just what he wrote and said about uh, his own religious belief and religious belief in America, but also what some of his friends and um, and former clerks and uh, kids noticed about how he practiced his own faith and and what his influence was on them. This collection runs the gamut. It's kind of I think a three hundred and sixty. Uh, degree perspective of, of his religious belief and what he saw as the proper place of religion in American public life and also how he worshipped. Let's talk about his faith and how he practiced it and if relevant how he practiced it and uh, urged is that the right verb? 
the rest of the family to practice it. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, he was, well, I guess my brother probably puts it best. Uh, my, my brother, uh, Father Paul Scalia, a Catholic priest, wrote the introduction to this collection. Um, and he writes this. For years, I have heard my father referred to as a devout Catholic. I always wince at that word, which typically describes one who comes easily to his re- religious practice, prays peacefully, and speaks naturally about his faith. That wasn't my father. He was indeed a man of faith and in his own way devout. But like everything else in his life, faith had something of an argument and contest about it. So, uh, you know, and Paul yeah. describes kind of conversations he has with my dad where my dad um, he calls him on the phone and, and mentions that he's been saying the rosary uh, daily. And, and Paul says, uh, oh, that, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. And, and dad says something like, yeah, does it do any good? You know, just kind of... <laughs> Kind of half serious, but I think yeah. also, you know, so kind of an ornery statement, but also uh, expresses a, you know, a concern that I think all believers had about the you know, the efficacy sure. of what of what we do. Um, but my, my dad, um, he didn't lecture us about faith. Uh, he would occasionally talk to us about his beliefs. Um, he'd take us aside and and describe or show us a prayer he really liked. And we include a couple of prayers he, he really liked in this collection. Um, or he would show us a passage from C.S. Lewis or Chesterton that he really admired. But it, it, we didn't live in fear of getting lectures after Mass all the time or anything like that. Mostly the way he influenced us was just by what he did. We saw how re- important religion was to him, and Catholicism specifically, because he went to church every week, and he brought us along, and he prayed intensely at mass and he participated in mass by singing and 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 praying along with the priest um and and things like that so he was he was an example and justice thomas wrote the forward to the collection and he, he mentioned something similar just kind of seeing how dad worshiped dad didn't dad didn't evangelize very often explicitly but but he was just uh an incredible role model and evangelist just through what he did Yes, so many things you say uh, I want to pick up on. I'm sure you have a lot of people telling you how close they were to your dad. Um, I'm one of them, I'd like to say so, because I think I was. Um, And he told me once that I was the only uh, TV or radio show he listened to, my my show, Morning in America. He said he'd listen to while shaving. Not for very long, he'd say, but, uh, (laughs) but, but but he would listen to it. Um, no, that's right. He did. He did. But you all did go to church. He he saw to that, or your mother saw to that. Yeah, I don't remember there ever being a point where we, you know, put up much of a fight to not go to church. But yeah, they took us to, to mass every week, and um, especially during the seventies, that was a that was a trickier proposition because we lived our our neighborhood parishes just were were not. Well, they, let's just say they were watered down. They were buying into a lot of the uh, kind of hippy dippy Catholicism that was prevalent in the seventies and my parents had no time for that. So they would, uh, they would take us, you know, 30 minutes into the city or something like that to, so that we could experience a proper Catholic mass, not, not even a Latin mass, just, you know, a mass that was, uh, that took the liturgy seriously and had, had good traditional music. Just curious about rituals. Did, uh, did you all say grace before meals? We, we, we did indeed. And my father led it every night. Uh, he, he was home for dinner every night, and uh, he led us in the grace before meals every night. My brother Paul points out that that was always kind of a quickly run affair. Um, my, my father was a hungry guy, after all. But, so it was um, a quick, uh, bless us, Lord, and he's, I guess, what you're about to receive, that, like that? It, that? That's the one, and he, he sounded he sounded more like an auctioneer. 
than uh, you know than, than actually a, a prayer. But, uh, I know. I know. Uh, you know, that, I know. As, as rushed as it was, I think it was a really important message. Um, first of all, he was there for dinner every night. That was really important to him. And yes, um, I took for granted how significant and how difficult that was for him. But but now, as I have a family of my own, I, I realize what a big deal that is. And that time together really started with prayer. And I think that the prayer itself is important, of course, but it's also an important statement to the family. Yeah, you know what you say about how difficult it is to be home, especially in the, in this town, Washington. You know, everybody, everybody's yeah. so important, got so many important things to do and invitations and receptions and et cetera. Uh, for him to have gotten home uh, on a regular, every night, not regular, but every night basis is, is a tribute to his dedication to that family. And, and he would tell his clerks, be home for dinner. That's when children don't act like animals. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that to his clerks. So yeah. He preached what he practiced. What, what kind of rules? I guess you guys preceded the uh, age of the, the iPhone, right? Growing up with Dad. but We did, yeah. What kind of rules? Well, you know, I think if you ask my older siblings, they will, they will have a, uh, well, to use another religious term, they will have a litany of rules that my parents imposed. Uh, my sister Mary has a, uh, a, a contribution in this collection, and she describes kind of some of the rules, including they weren't allowed to wear jeans. Um, what? For, for, I, yeah, I, I can't imagine that. But I guess through, uh, I, that wasn't imposed on me, so it would have ended in the late 70s or something. So, okay. um but yeah, they, they they were, I think, early on pretty strict about TV. Mm-hmm. By the mm-hmm. time I got around, I was kid number eight of nine. Either they realized those rules didn't matter, or they're just too exhausted to to actually enforce them. I didn't have I didn't have uh, rules like that to deal with. So, but it, it definitely wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was a chaotic house because there were so many of us, but it, it was not anarchic at all. There were there were rules about being home for dinner. You know, we were expected to be there for dinner, and, and if we, you know, uh, unless there was some school related thing or something like that, we were expected to go to mass. But um, and I, I think the worst thing about growing up was just all the time I had to spend in the yard doing yard work with my dad. Mm-hmm. But I think as as far as rules go, I I got off the hook compared to my older siblings. I got you. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you say chaos, but not anarchy? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think it works busy. I, I tell people about marriage cause we have, we're just four. They're just my wife and I and two boys, but, uh, both sort of positive charged guys. And my wife and I are both kind of positive charged. And so I say to people when they get married, it's happily ever after, not necessarily quietly ever after. You know, we weren't quiet. My guess is the Scalia house was not a quiet house. No, it was it was a loud house. And I realized just how loud it was when I when I would <laughs> hang out with friends and they would always tell me how loud I was being all the time. To me, it was a normal inside voice, but, you know, to be heard, competing for attention at the dinner table. Yeah, it was uh, out of habit. I always had a loud voice. I went to the uh, magnificent funeral uh, held in your father's honor, and Paul, your brother Paul, Father Paul spoke. He told a story, true or not, about going to confession and finding out Father Paul was hearing confessions and he would have to give his confession if he went there to, to his son. And he said, no way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> he said something like, to hell with that. Or <laughs> You're not hearing my confession, kid. Okay, yeah, okay. But, and, and, and Paul's reply was something yeah, like, I don't want to hear your confession. <laughs> so I think they were both happy of that. That's yeah, right. Worked out well. That's right. But, and and Paul, Paul tells that story in this collection, and he tells another story about how um, when, uh, when Paul was a, a parish priest, he was assigned to Dad's parish. 
And uh, I, I think initially, half-jokingly told Dad, I don't want you coming to my Mass, because he knew that he would have to put up with, you know, uh, nitpicky uh, comments after Mass and, and criticism. Because that's what Dad did after Mass. He would, he would praise the priest, but also criticize other elements of the religion. I, I, yeah, um, I, I, I did, but, I did but the same did, thing. Dad did go to, to Paul's Masses very often. Paul's a, a wonderful priest and gives great homily. So, uh, you know, and, and Paul came to really appreciate having mass, uh, having uh, my dad in, in the congregation for those masses. I, I want to get some other serious things here in a second, but your story reminds me, <laughs> he didn't want him, he didn't want the critique. My son was not a priest, but a bartender uh, for a summer. <laughs> and uh, I went to the place where he was tending bar and he, uh, <clears throat> waitress came up, asked what I wanted. I said, a martini. And she went back and told the bartender and he looked over and he said, I'm not serving him. And uh, and she said, "When I said I want to say, I'm just not serious." She said, "Well, you have to serve him. He's a customer." So he said, "Okay." So he made me a martini, and I had it. And I told the waitress on the way back, "I said, tell the bartender that's the worst damn martini I ever had in my life." And up till this point, to quote an article, I never met a martini I didn't like. You know. So anyway, it's it's a it's a bad analogy, but it fits our family uh, uh, pretty pretty well. Um, yeah, but but faith on faith uh, is the book. Uh, Christopher Scalia and Ed Whalen, the, the co-authors, and and many essays in it. Faith and his belief in America and the Constitution. What was the connection uh, that he saw, and in what way did his faith inform his? His uh, his decisions, his thinking about the country, his thinking about the Constitution. He used to kind of be at pains to explain to people that, um, especially uh, Catholic audiences, that there was no way to really be a Catholic Supreme Court justice. Um, there is no Catholic way of interpreting the Constitution or tradition um, or, or, or precedent except to do it well um, and, and to work hard at it. And in his foreword, Justice Thomas makes the connection uh, along the same lines that to dad, um, the religious element of the job was uh, faithfully upholding the oath he made when he was sworn in. And that oath to dad entailed limits to what he could do as a judge, as an Article Three judge. Um, that meant he could not impose his policy preferences or his religious views uh, on decisions or when he made decisions. Um, that's just kind of the nature of an originalist justice. They're going to they're going to have a more limited vision of the of a judge's power. Um, when it came to cases like uh, abortion, especially, my dad would say, you know, if if a pro life person came up to him and thanked him for his opinion in an abortion case, dad would say, "Don't thank me for that because I'm Catholic. That's not my Catholic belief had nothing to do with it. If the Constitution clearly had a right to an abortion in there." I would decide the I would rule the other way, but the Constitution gives no such thing. Um, that's why I decide as I do, not because I'm Catholic. Uh, so I think that that might surprise some people, but you know it makes total sense um, that you know given his limited under his understanding of the limited role of a judge uh, in, in the in the in the uh, United States federal judiciary that, that that's how it should work out for him. On the other hand, um, that same originalist approach meant that he understood that the founders wanted a wide space for religion in the public square. And he was concerned that over the past you know, 50 or 60 years, the Supreme Court had forgotten that. Um, the Constitution and, and 
as the court once recognized, um, wanted, the founders wanted people to be religious. And it, it gave them that space in the public square to have religious celebrations for presidents to ex- give thanks to God and things like that. Because the founders understood that religion was an important source of virtue for many people. And for a, for a democratic republic to survive, the people needed to be virtuous. Um, and many of my father's speeches warn people but, and, and kind of lament uh, the, the state of the court's religious jurisprudence by saying that it, it's moved from um, saying the government needs to be neutral between religious denominations to now saying the court needs to be neutral between religion and non-religion. That is not what the Constitution said. That is not what the established clause meant. And so uh, it was a big mistake for the court to move that direction. And, and he implied that there would, there would be democratic or there would be damaging effects and consequences for the, for the republic because it would kind of inhibit people's religious expression and religious um, practice. And that would have harmful consequences for, for us as a people. Yeah, the founders, as I read them, uh, said you know, not just important, you know, virtue, of course, but where that virtue came from, indispensable is the kind of word Washington uses. Adams uses similar words. Yeah. Even Jefferson, who's not a <clears throat> fervent believer, um, talked right. about the, the need the need for religious faith as a foundation of this country. I, I was I was curious if you had reaction to um, this week. Um, the Cathedral Notre Dame, and I was talking about it some on TV. And I made a couple of points. Uh, first of all, I said as a former teacher, I could teach a whole course in Western civilization just using that building, you know, <laughs> history, literature, art, architecture, music, etc. But the second thing I pointed out, I said, is interesting that commentators saying things like Jesus and the crown of thorns and and so on and in the altar and. Uh, Claude here, producer, was saying um, earlier in the in the podcast it was interesting to hear people who never say those words say them. I said I agreed, but they they often talked about them as if they were anthropologists, you know, looking from the outside um, uh, in on the practices of some you know some some group of of, of tribesmen of people, and in fact, uh, you know, religion is not just a <laughs> set of beliefs among a group of people. Uh, for those of us who believe, we believe it's the truth. And uh, we go to Cathedral Notre Dame and other places in McLean, Virginia, or Chevy Chase, Maryland, or uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, to uh, to express that faith. That it's 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 it seems it, that doesn't seem that it is central to the fabric of this republic of faith. Yeah, my father. Um, I was talking to my mom about this about about Notre Dame specifically. My father spent a junior year his junior year um, in college in, in Switzerland and, and made a trip to Paris and of course loved Notre Dame and, and, and took many pictures of it. And my mom says that, you know, some of the best pictures he ever, t- my dad was a bit of an amateur photographer. And she said that some of the um, best pictures he took were of, were of that cathedral. And I, I could just kind of imagine the heartbreak he would, he would be feeling. Um, but it, you know, what you said about um, the uh, kind of the anthropological distance that these reporters have, describing this stuff I, I before he died my father gave an it was like in 2013 or something he had an interview with a reporter from new york magazine and somehow the devil came, be, came up as a topic of conversation and um she said so you wait you believe in the devil and he said yes of course i believe in the devil yeah. 
I'm Catholic. You know, I, all Christians believe in the devil. And the, and the fact that he, he said something like this directly to the reporter, the fact that you don't and are even surprised that I do indicates how out of touch you are with the, with the everyday <laughs> beliefs of many m- millions of Americans. And he, in, in another speech, he mentions that, he, uh, you know, the way journalists describe religious people, there's that notorious episode where the Washington Post referred to evangelical Christians as being poorly educated and easily led. And then, um, and then a less notorious example of, uh, I think, an NPR reporter who used the phrase, uh, she was describing women in a church, and she said something like, they left a prayer in the church. My dad said, what, what does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. Nobody who knows anything about praying or you don't even have to know about Christianity, just praying. You, nobody, that's not an expression. Um, I think that was a source of frustration for him. And he would often warn um, audience, especially audiences of lawyers, when he delivered speeches uh, to Catholic or Christian lawyers, that you, know, you have to accept that you will be looked on as kind of alien, uh, alien beings to many of your peers, um, any of your classmates, um, you need to be ready to be fools for Christ uh, because they will think you're fools, even no matter how well you educated you are, etc. If you have certain beliefs and take them seriously, you're going to get funny looks. Yeah, no, that's ex- that's exactly right. Um, if you if you are genuinely a believer, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a story you may find useful, just to indulge me for a minute here, but along the same lines of the anthropologist. Uh, fallacy is what I call it. When I was chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities, we were reviewing grants to fellows, fellowship program. These are, you know, a professor salary for a year to write a book, and the government subsidized it, whether it's a good idea or not, is another question. But I remember listening to a panel review, and someone was writing about, I think it was St. Augustine, and the panel turned him down, and the reason they turned him down was because he was a fervent believer. And so the argument was he wouldn't have enough distance or perspective to write a really scholarly book. And I remember saying, so only non-believers need apply. Now think about that. You can only write about, you know, a Catholic figure or a Catholic religion or if you're not a Catholic. You know, you can't, you can't buy, buy into it. It's a very odd sort of the thing, but it's the same thing as the distinction between, among religions or the distinction between religion and no religion, isn't it? I mean, it's a, and it was very much a fixed, a fixed kind of... Uh, operational belief at the National Endowment for the Humanities that uh, believers, you know, in order to prove that they had uh, distance from their subject, pretty much had to renounce their faith for the purpose of the application. Yeah. And and they certainly would not have applied that same sort of uh, requirement of detachment to a feminist writing a book about feminism, yes, for that's example, right. you know, or, or uh, post-structuralist writing about post-structuralism. It's, it's only, I, I imagine they would apply that only to religious believers. Now, we used to give some money to uh, St. Anne's Infant Maternity Home. I don't know if you know it out there near Catholic University. It's a place where they take in um, uh, young women who are pregnant, and it, they they don't have abortions, they have their babies. We used to work with uh, uh, Sister Josephine out there. And I remember I was out in Las Vegas in a jackpot, and before I could give it back, I wrote a check to St. Anne's and sent it. And she said, this is a nice check. What happened? And I said, let's just call it the hand of God. You know? uh, uh, a little sacrilege. But, I, you know, a friend of mine told me, when you go to Vegas, it's not so hard to win. It's hard to leave winning. So bring some envelopes and stamps. 
And as soon as you win, put in the envelope and let it go. <laughs> anyway, um, Sister Josephine later told me uh, when I was Secretary of Education, she applied for a grant to the government. And because it was uh, grants under, you know, helping young women who were destitute. And that's what she was doing, just helping them, you know, carry forward to term. And she said that uh, the people in the government said it would be a lot easier um, if you weren't just a purely religious institution, you know, to give you this help. So I said, what did you say? And Sister Josephine, being like one of those tough nuns I had in school, said, I guess you'd like it better if we weren't St. Infant's maternity home, infant maternity home, but St. Anne's infant maternity home and waffle shop. Uh, she was she's tough. She didn't get the grant, you know. But that's that's the kind of, um, you know, not, not unbridled hostility or persecution, but just that kind of unknowing uh, prejudice. Um, I don't know. I don't know what you'd call it. Yeah, it, it's. I, sometimes I think it is prejudice, and then other times I think it's just excessive scrupulousness. Governments, and you see it with administrators at schools too. They're just so paranoid about what the Constitution allows, or who's going to sue them if if somebody says God in a classroom, or if you know if money is allowed to go one place or another. Um, but I mean, you see, I mean, the Supreme Court is is going to have to work out a lot of these problems. Like, uh, like there are still Blaine amendments that prohibit funding for for schools, and then, and then a couple of years ago, or even can't remember, maybe just last year, um, the case I think it was in Missouri about the the church that couldn't receive uh, funding for a playground, uh, right. funding for a playground because it was a church, right? Uh, you know, right. sorts of things like that that we're still trying to work out, like government funding for a playground is an endorsement of of that church itself I, you know it's, it's hard to imagine that people would really see it that way but well I, we, we need to wrap up the book is uh, on faith i just wanted to tell you one story we used to go to christmas parties at uh, my brother's house my brother's a well-known lawyer here robert bennett he's represented everybody from president clinton to casper weinberger a lot in between. And a uh, big party, lots of lawyers, lots of judges. There was always a piano player. Uh, at Christmas time, my wife loves to sing. She sings in a choir anyway, but she loves to sing. And she was in one room uh, where the piano player was. And my brother, whom we refer to as Uncle Bob, was there. And she said, I would love to sing, but will any of your friends sing with me? And Bob said, no, this isn't a singing. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know one person who will sing with you. <laughs> and he went out to the kitchen and uh, the living room and grabbed uh, your dad. And he said, uh, piano music, Christmas music, Mrs. Bennett's singing. You want to join her? He said, absolutely. And they went in and could hear his booming voice all over all over the house. He loved yeah, to sing, didn't oh, he? Man. He did. He um, When we started, uh, when my brothers and sisters started having lots of kids and we have, you know, uh, 39. My mom has 39 grandkids. <laughs> so we used to have a big Christmas gathering. And and they would always end with uh, some carol singing. My dad leading the way, and and often at at parties when my parents had people over, um, they would devolve or or evolve into uh, little singing parties with with my dad leading the songs and and playing the piano too. Yeah, it was great. He liked he liked to have fun. He loved he he, he loved music and he loved uh, singing. He did love to have fun and he loved a good joke and he loved to laugh. He did. Celebration of life, celebration of a great man, his faith, and he has a lot of great legacies, and uh, you're among them, I'll tell you. Congratulations to you, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. It was was great talking to you. You bet. Great talking to you, too. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show.
Brian Kennedy joins us now. He's the president of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Brian, welcome back to the show. Uh, my pleasure. Great to be with you. I want to talk about China. I want to talk about this new group that uh, you've uh, organized or helped organize. First, uh, let's took a couple of news items out. Um, the fire. Did you see that spire fall? Uh, Cathedral Notre Dame. I and, did. Heart- heartbreaking, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What, what were your reactions? What did you think? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm a political man, so I immediately thought that it was a very bad uh, symbol for what was going on in Europe more broadly, mm-hmm. and that the things that were undergirding Western civilization were collapsing. And mm-hmm. uh, hopefully the uh, French will have the resilience to rebuild, but they've gone through quite a period here where they ha- they've let their civilization, as it were, deteriorate. And so these kind of things will happen. And you saw ISIS cheering the uh, collapse of the spire and the disaster. And so this ought to be seen in uh, a much bigger context, or hopefully it could be seen in a bigger context. It was probably just an accident, but it's the kind of accident that shouldn't happen to such a magnificent structure. Yeah, I remember uh, I said the other day, uh, someone was talking about Europe, and I said, well, they don't believe in capitalism anymore, and they don't believe in God anymore, you know? And um, those are two kind of <laughs> stalwart things to keep a society healthy. No, that's right. And, uh, well, you you can see that, on the other hand, there, there are a lot of French people who do care about these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that the uh, the collapse of the spire and the burning of the church will will somehow awaken people that there are some important things that they ought to be attending to. Yeah, Claude was Claude was saying uh, that it was interesting, even though they weren't necessarily believers, to hear you know the newscasters say things like uh, Jesus and the saints and the crown of thorns, and, uh, and 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 for all of them to show that remarkable picture of the cross, which uh, remains unscathed. Yeah, that's right. Well. There are lessons to be learned, and hopefully we learn the right ones. I said that you could teach an entire course in Western civilization just on that building, religion, art, history, literature, architecture, music. And then I recalled that there was an old series on TV called Civilization. I don't know if you recall it. You're not old enough, I don't think. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. Kenneth Clark. And it starts with uh, a number of pictures of great uh, architecture of the West, but it starts, uh, the narration starts with him standing on the other side of the water with the uh, Cathedral Notre Dame behind him over his left shoulder. And he says, ask me for a definition of civilization. I'm not sure I can give you one, but I know it when I see it. And then he turns and points to the Cathedral Notre Dame. And I recalled that. Uh, pretty good, pretty good embodiment. I mean, th- that wood that went was um, 800 years old, you know, 900 years old. Amazing. But, but isn't that kind of a cop-out, too? I mean, it's more than just seeing it. It's magnificent to see. But look at all the thought that went into that. Yeah. And, the, and isn't it worth describing what what led to those kind of yeah. buildings getting built? Sure. That there's an idea, though, about about the afterlife and our role in this world and the sacrifices that Jesus, you know, made for our salvation. That's why men built those buildings, not just because they wanted great buildings, but because they symbolized something for everyday people to see, that it meant something to them to look at that and the magnificence of that. Well, you know... That seems seems to me the importance of that, right? I regard that as part of civilization. 
No, right. I, I guess I'm pushing back on the point that, that it's more than something, that when you see it, it's meant to mean something. And maybe that's what, what Clark, Clark means, actually. But so, nowadays, we need to articulate for people what these things mean. They just look at things, and it doesn't mean very much. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful or venerable, or it's 900 years old. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of, um, I was saying the other day, a bit of the, the commentary is like anthropologists looking at the practices of some tribe as opposed to looking at it from within your belief, your faith, which is what we saw a number of Parisians. You're quite right to remind me. Right. Why, do we, why, do, why are there spires on these churches? Mm-hmm. Because we're meant to look up. To look there's up. something that we're meant to look up to. It's greater than us, that these things that happened were greater than our mere existence. And we should study them and look at them and become better people for it and be a better person for it. That's what's being lost in Europe, I think. Yeah. I had heard it said, but I, I, I really didn't really register till I was in that cathedral. I've only been in it once. And when you go in, it, it, it's almost physical force, pushing your eyes up. You know, everything, everything lifts you to, to, to look up to the same direction you're talking about for the same purpose. Elon Omar, member of Congress, referred to 9-11 as some people did something. Uh, the New York Post ran a cover, I don't know if you saw it, of the towers exploding color photo with uh, huge clouds of smoke and fire and said, this is the something. The president thought it was pretty pitiful, what she said, pretty awful, criticized her, and uh, people are jumping all over the president and blaming him for what is apparently a new death threat against Elon Omar. Your comments. Well, it's, isn't that interesting? Omar seems to be a professional dissembler. That, I mean, her job is to go out there, make outrageous statements, and then see how many people uh, she can silence when there's any kind of backlash. Mm-hmm. And the president wasn't going to take it. Mm-hmm. The president called her out on it. The president thought that stuff was wrong. He pointed it out. And now the outrage is on him. But frankly, I think most Americans are on the side of the president. I do too. This wasn't just something. This was an attack on America and American civilization. The president wants to defend American civilization, and he's not going to back down. And Omar, on the other hand, is is uh, a very clever, uh, I won't even call her a politician. She's very clever. And she really does mean to be this provocative. This is not an accident. And you know, did you notice she even got the date of when CARE was founded wrong? I didn't. She said after 9-11, the CARE was founded, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Well, yeah. it was founded back in the 90s. Yeah. And it was really a prototype of something back in the, the 70s with the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and she knows all that, but she'll, she'll say something else just to get people going and just to make a point. It's very, it's very uh, insidious. And as soon as she says it and someone criticizes, they are any Muslim and leading to death threats. Right. Inciting violence was their meme the other day. There's a, there's a saying about mimetic warfare, taking a meme and actually just turning it into a kind of warfare. And if you can win the mimetic warfare part of the battle in, in politics, you know, you can win the whole war. That's clever. I never heard that. Well, it's a, it's almost a Chinese kind of philosophy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or a, chi- a Chinese way of thinking. But you can see it in American politics, and you can see it especially in Democratic politics today. They establish a meme, and they keep on running with it. 
And if they say it long enough, people will believe yeah. it yeah. because they don't, they don't hear anybody else on the other side challenge it. Yeah. Who beside the president had the courage to challenge Omar? That, New, York Post, New York Post did. But. A congressman from Texas, the guy with the lost his eye. Can't think of his name at the moment. Right. Crenshaw, is it? Right. Right. There's some, there's some, there's some uh, Crenshaw, I guess. Yeah, and, I so. and he's a, a very good man, it seems. And there are some courageous people, you know, who will criticize her. But by and large, these memes go unchallenged and they stick. And yeah. that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to see if if you can use these these few Islamic congressmen we have to silence the country when it comes to any kind of criticism. Well, they've got an entire arsenal, don't they? The Democrats and liberals on, and the mimetic warfare, new phrases for me, new term for me. I mean, they've got, you can be any Muslim or any black or any woman, right? They've got the whole arsenal, the whole array. Because we know Americans, being decent and nice people, they don't want to be called bigots of any sort. So that's a weapon they've got to keep people from saying what they know to be true. You know, right. And there's white privilege. Mm. Oh, and we're all racist. Yeah, it goes on and on. It just goes on and on and on. Yeah. And it is. It is a way of conditioning people and silencing people. And in a free society, that's, uh, that's wrong to do. It's wrong in any case. But in a free society like ours, to treat people that way is in a way intolerable. To close down discourse at a time when we need open discourse. Let's talk Let's talk about open discourse. You mentioned China and the Chinese using this kind of a medical warfare. Tell us about China. Begin, if you want, with the, the organization of this new group, which you're a major mover. Well, yeah, I've become chairman of this Committee on the Present Danger China, which is a, a uh, new iteration of the Committee on the Present Danger, which was started actually back in the 40s and 50s in its first iteration uh, to try to understand the growing Soviet threat after World War II, and then in a second iteration back in the 70s to actually understand that we were falling behind the United States was with the Soviet Union and that we needed to do something about it. And there was collected all sorts of Americans of every stripe, intellectuals, former military folks, business folks, uh, artists, uh, labor union leaders. But, uh, but most especially defense hawks, as it were, uh, including Ronald Reagan himself. And they were making the argument back then that we weren't doing enough to challenge the Soviet Union. We'd fallen behind when it came to strategic weapons and that something had to be done. Reagan gets elected and 39 members of the committee go and work in his administration and help win the Cold War. Well, in that spirit, I and Frank Gaffney and Steve Bannon and others decided to start a committee on the present danger of China to do the same thing and to try to alert Americans today that there is a existential threat from communist China and that if we don't wake up to that threat, there will be very um, a very dangerous world we find ourselves in shortly when the Chinese have become not merely an economic power but a military power and that Americans need to understand that and do something about it. Thankfully, President Trump is very solid on this issue, has been for 25 years, understanding the, the, the threat from China economically and militarily. And I think one of our aspirations is to remind Americans about these threats and to help President Trump wherever we can 
uh, make the case that China is a problem. And it's the kind of problem that could be both life-threatening when it comes to the buildup of the Chinese military, but also they themselves think they're in a kind of economic war with us, and it's a war that they intend on winning. Well, and Americans shouldn't shouldn't settle for that. I want to come back to, to it and its purpose and philosophy, but is it a membership organization? Can listeners find out more about it? Can they join? Uh, there's a website, uh, presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org, where some of the, the writings uh, will be published and some of the opening statements uh, were published. Uh, it's not a membership organization per se. It really is, it does mean to be an educational organization. Uh, it's wholly independent and uh, bipartisan or nonpartisan. And we really do want to alert Americans about the threat in such a way that it's not, it's not meant to uh, support President Trump per se. It's just that President Trump is one of those people who actually understands it. Says something about it and wants to do something about it, and you know you see in the trade negotiations and in President Trump's military buildup all the right signs. Will, will, will the committee issue reports or statements or? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Thank you. That's a good question. It, it will have a series of papers about the both the economic threats and the military threats and the you know I mentioned the medic warfare. The Chinese are very good in information warfare. And we're working on a large paper right now on China and information warfare and their ability to influence events politically in this country and around the world. Do you, um, Brian, um, by the way, just I just mentioned you're a fairly regular guest um, on this uh, podcast, thanks to you know your work and contribution, the American Strategy Group sponsorship. If from time to time, remind us of the work the committee's doing whether papers are there, and we'll send people back to the website. Yes, no, I'd love to. I'll make sure that people are aware of everything that the committee produces. Are the American people aware of the present danger that China represents? You would think from the discussion we're here on the verge of the Mueller thing and so on that if you asked America's, Americans what the chief threat in the world is, they might say well, Al-Qaeda or the Middle East or Russia. The American people know the world's inherently a dangerous place, but for the last two years, we've been made to think that the Russians are the chief opponents of American freedom, uh, when in fact the Chinese are the ones that have been engaged in so much bad behavior. China is by far the biggest threat. The um, One of the big fights today is about China and their role in the American economy, and Americans buy a lot of Chinese consumer goods and they're inexpensive, and Americans like to buy things, but they don't see China as using the proceeds of all those consumer goods that they buy, building up a military to challenge the United States. And in fact, China is building a navy that is extremely capable. It has a navy that if we got into a war in the South China Sea, the, uh, the Chinese navy, just given its size, would would defeat the U.S. Navy, you know. Now, when is the last time, when's the last time an American's heard that? Really? In war games in the last five years, when, they, when the Pentagon simulates war in the South China Sea between the United States and China, in the last five years, our ships and our aircraft are superior, but we run out of munitions during a, a battle. 
Our ships can sink as many of their ships as our munitions will let them. But eventually, our ships run out of missiles, you know, torpedoes, our planes run out of bombs to drop, and then absent anything to shoot at the, you know, Chinese, the Chinese are able to sink American aircraft carriers and and destroyers, and we end up losing the battle, or we end up going to nuclear war, which, of course, no one wants to do, need I say. Uh, so the Chinese have grown over the years. While Americans celebrated winning the Cold War, the Chinese built a, a military that is first rate. And we didn't hear much about that, did we? No. Partly because we were fighting a war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we were worried about other things. Well, while, while we were doing that, the Chinese built a very advanced arsenal. They have nuclear weapons. They have nuclear missiles. They have very advanced fighter aircraft. They have a space program. They, you know, they've sent a man to the moon. <laughs> I mean, they're doing all sorts of things that that suggest they're a real power. Now, if you combine that real military power with their ambition to dominate the world, well. That's a dangerous thing. Do they want to dominate the world because they want to be the dominant player in the world? Or do they want to dominate the world because they want to be the dominant player in the world? And they, do they want to destroy us? Would they be just as happy not to destroy us if they were the number one and we, and we were intimidated? Sure. I, think that's, I think that's right. I think, I think that's right. I, I don't think their, their, their goal is to kill every one of us or to conquer us, invade us, and have us all speak Chinese. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily their intent. But they're a great power, and they have great strategic interests. So like any great power, they want to dictate world events to their liking. And so they have a, a modern industrial economy, and they want to sell things. When they sell things, they want to make as much money as possible. So they have an economic program that, will, that is geared toward making them a lot of money. And they don't care about playing fair, as the president often points out. And so they will lie, cheat, and steal, steal our technology, and produce you know, goods to sell anywhere in the world so that they become rich and a dominant economic power. Yeah. Now, when they look at the United States, they want to sell us things. They don't, you know, everyone says, well, the Chinese and the Americans will never go to war because America is their big market to sell goods. And that's partly true. But what if a time comes when the Chinese say, we don't care about selling these American things. We're tired of them running, running the world. We want to run the world. And so America, you know, get in your place. And you're not going to challenge us when it comes to Europe or Africa or Latin America. We're the biggest country on earth and or most populous country on earth. And we're going to dictate events the way we see fit. And if you don't like it, you know, let's go. Let's have a war. Let's see who wins this. Yeah. Yeah. And again, these things are, are these things are kind of, you know, outside the realm of what most Americans think. But world history is replete with countries going to war over much less. Is is has the growth and threat of China been growing relatively unimpeded until the advent of Donald Trump or is that an overstatement? Well, I think it's been growing Yes, I think that's, that's, that's not an overstatement at all. Uh, not only unimpeded, but with the great help of the United States. Uh, Michael Pillsbury, in his book, 
uh, the 100-year marathon points out that much of China's technological advances came because the United States gave them the technology, gave them the technology. They didn't, they didn't even have to steal much of it, that there were treaties back in the 1970s that uh, both allowed for and encouraged technology transfers to the PRC. Was this Nixon opening the door to uh, China? Partly, Nick, par- partly, yeah, partly Nixon, uh, most, probably mostly Nixon, but uh, also Carter, and it occurred all through Reagan. Uh, and, th- I mean, look, the, we were fighting the Cold War with the Soviet Union. So back then, you know, policymakers thought that a strong China would be a check on the Soviet Union, which was not a crazy way of thinking, per se. Yeah. But once the Soviet Union collapsed, we should have reconfigured our strategy uh, to, to make sure that China wasn't going to become a new threat. Everybody had the hope that China would evolve into a modern democratic society, but it hasn't. In a way, it's perfected communism to rule over 1.3 billion people. And it's done so in a way that has allowed much of the country to become very wealthy and a model nowadays for, for um, progressive government. The idea that, that you could have a government that controls 1.3 billion people through both social media, fear of repression, at the same time having you know the kind of consumer economy for the wealthy people in China, you know, pl- you know, parts of China look like parts of the United States, at least when it comes to consumerism. That that's an amazing, complicated achievement, and they are a great country with a very capable people. It's not like they're backwards or that they're lazy or that they're stupid. They're extremely intelligent. They're extremely hardworking, and they have the ambition to be the most powerful nation on earth. And again, that's not some grand conspiracy. That's just the way the world works, right? They think, why should we be second place to the United States or Russia or anyone else? We're a great country. Why shouldn't we dictate world events to our liking? And if that requires having a first-rate military, let's build it. If that requires having a sophisticated economic system that is able to intertwine itself both with the West, most especially the United States, and also our, our own form of communism, well, so be it. I mean, they, they are very, very sophisticated when it comes to these things. I think much more sophisticated than the Russians ever were. The Russians had a much more simplistic economy. They're mostly a, a energy-producing economy, the Russians, the Soviet Union. The Chinese, they build things, and they're good at it. And that's a, that's a real challenge for the United States, because as a commercial republic, we want to trade with people. We don't want to see them as enemies. But we, found, we find ourselves today with a nation that we trade with, like China, that also has great strategic designs against us. They write about these things in their military journals. President Xi gives speeches that either state openly this kind of interest and that's something Americans should be concerned about, and thankfully, President Trump is is a real, you know, shining light when it comes to uh, this threat. What, what the committee on present danger? China has a danger. What 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 does the committee think? How do we deal with this danger? What are the key elements of confronting this danger, lessening this danger, defeating this danger? What can you tell us in a couple of minutes? 
Well, it's um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a that's a great great question. Uh, one is to rebuild the military in such a way that the Chinese are deterred. That that seems like a simple thing, and everyone thinks we have a fabulous military, and we do. But we simply have to make sure that the that our military today is so powerful that the Chinese are deterred from using, you know, military actions to force events. And you see these these confrontations in Taiwan, and you see their support of Venezuela, the Chinese support of Venezuela. And these things are very provocative, and they're testing President Trump. And they know militarily that the United States lacks certain things, and so America can only do certain things. So we want a military that is stronger than the one we have today. Okay. Economically, economically, the, the forced technology transfers that the president is, has pointed out and the theft of intellectual property that has to stop. Mm-hmm. And part of the holdup on this trade deal is that they can't get satisfaction on how they're going to enforce any kind of mechanism when it comes to the theft of intellectual property. I see. That's something, that's something we have to get right. Because okay. if nothing else, we produce these kinds of things. And then, and then, I won't say finally, but very important is this whole question of 5G and the kind of new technology that that is going to be in our cities and in our economy for the next you know, decade. You see that the Chinese want to build America's 5G system, and that is on your cell phones and, and what have you. The cell phone towers right now are 4G, some are 5G. Well, eventually the whole country is going to be 5G, and 5G is radically faster than 4G and radically better than 4G. Well, if we let the Chinese build big parts of that system, it simply means that the Chinese will have access to all the technology and all the all the information and all the conversations we have. Can't we build it so ourselves? It's an open door. Well, we could we could we could build parts of it ourselves, but uh, we haven't. Yeah. And this is without being too complicated. This is one of the supply chain problems that the president has pointed out. America no longer builds certain things. Yeah. And so if the Chinese don't build it, you have to go to you know various European countries to get it. But most of the European countries get their equipment from China as well. So the Chinese, in a very clever way, have figured out in an information-based economy and a technological age, the Chinese have figured out a way of dominating all that. So it's, it sounds to me in your narrative like the president is aware of this and the three things you've mentioned is taking him into account is, is, is himself by himself. Well, with his colleagues giving, um, giving the right kind of resistance to this danger. Right. But he still has a government of people who have been thinking in the old way. Yeah. Yeah. And he's and the president only now is, is, I think getting some of this part of it right. General Mattis, for instance, at the Pentagon, he wasn't pro-China. He just wasn't doing the things that would stop China in their in their military buildup. He did he didn't see the threat the way other people did. You look in the trade negotiations. The president gets it right, but Steve Mnuchin, you know, doesn't agree with the president on these things, or doesn't seem to agree with the president on okay. these things. 
it, 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 there's still a long ways to go. The president gets it, uh, and the president's trying to educate the American people, and in that regard, uh, we're trying to join him. Good. To educate the American people. Good. And with your urging and the urging of the committees can, can make a difference. Thank you, Brian. Uh, we hope we hope so. We hope so. Thank you, Bill. Thank, Thank you, you, and great to be with you. congratulations on the formation of the committee. And uh, again, give us a website for folks. Uh, PresentDangerChina.org. Okay, our time for this episode has come to an end. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. The address is BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Share the podcast with your family and friends. We will catch up next week. 